Welcome to the Amicable Divorce Network podcast. My name is Tracy Ann Moore Grant, and I'm the founder of the Amicable Divorce Network. Our podcast is here to educate those before, during, and after divorce, as well as divorce professionals about all of the issues that impact a family law case. We are here to educate you about difficult topics, provide you new information, and also give solutions for how to navigate all of the issues in family law and still bring your family law case to an efficient conclusion. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you everybody for joining us today. Karis Nafti is here and she is going to be speaking to us about fur baby custody, pet custody. This is coming up more and more in cases. The trend is becoming that parties, a lot are not getting or People aren't getting married is a trend, but also people are waiting later to have children or not having children at all. And so their fur babies more and more are becoming like their real children and becoming the subject of mediation, litigation, and many other topics. Karis is a pet custody mediator. She is a certified dog behavior consultant and accredited family mediator. She's the founder and owner of Who Keeps the Dog? Pet Custody Mediation. She brings 25 years of professional experience as a dog behavior expert into the world of dogs and divorce. In addition to working with her own clients, she is an educator and worldwide speaker on the subject of pet custody. Harris developed and teaches the very first accredited pet custody education course for divorce professionals to learn best practices for a dog's best interest. And some states, I'm sure she's going to touch on this, have pet custody laws in place. A passionate and engaging speaker with a unique background in the world of families divorcing with pets, Karis has presented on the subject of pet custody for the American Bar Association, the Association of Professional Family Mediators, and International Mediation Week. Her work has been featured um, in the Associated Press, Vice News, ABC News, and Australian Dog Lover Magazine. So we are so honored to have her here today. Thank you so much, Karis. I am going to turn it over to you to teach us today. Super. Thanks, Tracy. And it's amazing when someone else reads out what you've done, because now I feel very important. So let's hope I can live up to that intro. So thank you very much. Um, thank you all for being here. I... My biggest joy and passion in this life is teaching people how to deal with animals better in whatever sort of context. So it's a great privilege for me to share this information. So thank you for being here. And as Tracy Ann said, if you have any questions, I'd love to know your questions. Just put them in the chat and I will make sure to get to them if at all possible. So don't be shy. So I really hope that this talk is two things. I hope that is entertaining and helpful. I feel that we all learn better when we are enjoying what we're listening to. I certainly do. So I really hope, I would imagine you're here either because you love dogs or because you've had clients with dogs and cats and custody issues. So either way, I hope you learn something about dogs in general. And I want you to leave this talk with very practical tips that you can use. So I'm going to give you an overview of the work that I do, but I'm going to give you some tips you can use tomorrow with your clients and take care of the dogs better in the custody situation. So before I formally start, I wanna mention that when I talk about pet custody, my habit is to say dogs. Most of my work is with dogs. However, 
everything I'm saying here can equally be applied to cats, parrots, guinea pigs, <laughs> whatever other sort of fur animals are in the house or feathered animals. But the majority of the work that I do is around dogs. But please, if you have clients with any other sort of species, you can just stick that into whatever we're talking about as we go forward. Like I said, I would like to give you practical, I will give you practical tools you can leave with. And if you are interested, if this tickles your interest, what I talk about today, I'm also giving my, I have a three-part pet custody course that Tracy Ann mentioned. It's an accredited course. You can earn your CBD points doing it. And the next one starts June 28th. So I'll put a little blurb about that in the chat box. If anybody's interested, I'd love to have you there. You'll learn a lot. Okay, but let's get started. I would like to know, please, and if you, maybe you can even just wave, I think you can raise your hand if you, even if your camera's mm -hmm. off. How many people here have a dog? If you have a dog, just raise your hand or put your little yellow hand up if you don't. Hands up, Shani's got a hand, everybody. Think everybody's got a dog, pretty much got, okay, cool. I'm always fascinated if people have got pets and cats and dogs. So that's really, that's good to know, good. It's both, it's a help and a hindrance to love dogs doing pet custody, I must tell you, because the big challenge is we have to love dogs, but we also have to see them objectively in order to be fair about what happens to them. I'd like to give you a very quick background on myself now. So to give you a sense of how I started doing this work and where it all came from. I am originally from Oregon in the States. I grew up in Portland and that's where I started doing my work with animals. I'm talking to you right now, very interesting from South Africa. So I actually live in Cape Town in South Africa. I've been work, living and working here for many years. And yeah, I do my work all over the world. So I'm in the States and Australia and Canada and the UK and all over the place. So I'm a qualified service dog trainer. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant, and I'm an accredited international mediator. So that I marry those things together in doing my work on pet custody. And I started doing work in pet custody because I saw the need for it. So in, in my job as a dog behaviorist, for those of you who don't know what that is, people call me when they're having problems with their dogs. So it can be a mild problem like, oh, my puppy's chewing on the carpet, or it can be a serious problem. Oh, my dog just bit my child and sent my child to the hospital, or my dog is trying to kill my cat, or the dog runs away at the park, and everything in between, dogs with separation anxiety. And as I was seeing clients over the years, every sort of issue you can imagine with their dogs, I was noticing more and more of the clients I was working with who had recently been divorced, either a few months or even a few years sometimes when I saw them. And the dog was having all kinds of behavior problems because of the custody decision. And the custody decision was not right for the dog. The dog was caught in a legal battle sometimes and the one spouse had a better lawyer, so they ended up keeping the dog. Or on the other side of the equation, I was seeing people who were very friendly with their ex and they wanted to do shared custody with the dog and the dogs couldn't handle it. A lot of dogs, so here's spoiler alert, <laughs> A lot of dogs struggle with shared custody. It is not ideal for most dogs. It's a very difficult and stressful situation to put dogs in. So that's one of the things I'm gonna to talk to you about today. So I was seeing in my practice dogs who were suffering because of what had happened in a divorce situation. And my mother, when I grew up, my mom was a divorce mediator. 
So I was quite lucky to have 30 years of my mom working as a divorce mediator and kind of understanding the world of being a neutral person and helping people resolve their conflicts without litigation and without lawyers and the benefits of that. So bringing that awareness into it, I that's when I became a mediator myself. And now I focus my work here on pet mediation. So that is the background. That's how all of this started. And like I said, when I started this, my, my favorite thing to do is to educate people like yourself. The more divorce professionals who know how to work with dogs and cats and parrots, the better. So what I'm going to give you all tonight is I'm going to give you my top five tips. And I'm going to copy this into the chat box that you can read. But my top five tips for dealing with dogs and divorce. And I'm going to send you this article. It's on my website. Anybody can access it. This is something you're welcome to give to your clients. So if you do have a client with a dog, you can send them to the, send this to them beforehand just to get their mind thinking about it in a good way, or you can keep it for yourself and just resource it. Um, but there's a lot of sort of um, general mistakes that people often get wrong about pet custody and these tips seek to mitigate it. So I'm just going to copy this now and put it in the chat box. I, I think that's fine. So give me one second while I try to be technical. And, but I will also, will email it to everybody after. Okay, it's in the chat box if you wanna grab it there or you can get it after. Now I've lost my notes, there we are. Okay, so my top five tips. When you have a client who has a dog or a cat. And the other thing I'd like to say about these five tips is that and this is helpful for custody in general with dogs. Dog custody tends to be, and I'm making a bit of a general statement, but it tends to be more of a heated issue when there are no human children. Generally, when there are human children, I have to separate them because people call their dogs their children. So when there are human children, the focus, the sort of energy of parenting centers around the kids. So there can certainly be issues that come up when there's kids and dogs. And I go over that in more detail in the course that I do, how to actually, should the dog move with the kids? Should it stay with one parent? How should you work with that? But these five tips I'm giving now are primarily relevant for people who are separating when there are no children, there are just dogs, and the intensity of parenting and the emotions are a lot higher and this helps to mitigate it. So I hope now when you leave this talk today that if you don't already have in your intake form the question of do you have a pet that you add it because it's really helpful if you can know ahead of time whether or not your people have animals coming in because it happens more often than you'd think and I'm sure some of you have this experience that You've been mediating for a few hours, you've been going through things, and then suddenly, oh yeah, and I'm keeping a Cocker Spaniel. And suddenly there's a dog thrown into the mix um, that can throw everything a little bit sideways. So you wanna have that information going in um, so you can bring it up. So the first point in my five tips is bring up the dog as soon as possible. Now, when, you, when people are separating and there is a dog and there's a lot of emotion around the dog, First of all, if one person is particularly attached to the dog, Tracy Ann even started that way. She said, I'll kill anyone who tries to take my dog. <laughs> if one person in the relationship is very attached to the dog, the other party is well aware of this. They know that. And it's very easy when the emotions are very high for the dog to become weaponized in some way. And if it is brought up sooner, 
in the discussion than later, you can much easier reduce the chance of the dog becoming a weapon or a bargaining chip or something like that. People don't always want to talk about the dog. If it's too emotional, they almost pretend it's not happening or they, it can be a very hard thing for people to even bring up. So what I would suggest to you as mediators is when you are faced with a client and they have a dog, be very honest about why you want to bring it up soon. Tell them, say, we want to talk about the dog because dogs are a very emotional issue. We want to deal with the dog fairly for the dog's sake and for your sake. So even though it can be a challenge, let's get it out of the way first. And then it must be off the table so it doesn't get brought in later as leverage in, in some other context. The hard part about pets is that as soon as someone's using it for leverage, they're not thinking about the dog. They're not thinking about what's right for the dog. They're thinking about themselves. And the work that I do is all about, while being totally respectful and kind to the humans involved, we wanna mostly do what the right thing is for the dog, not for one particular person or the other. And that's what we have to uncover in everything. Now, as, a, as an aside, because uh, I know you're all from different, listening from different parts of the world in different states. In most parts of the world right now, Dogs are still, as you, I'm sure, they're still considered personal property. But there are a few states and countries where that is changing. So just keep an eye on your, the laws in your state. So right now in California, New York, Illinois, Alaska, and I just heard New Hampshire is also changing this, and Spain and Portugal and France. In those countries, unless I'm missing something, oh, and in um, British Columbia and Canada. So all of those places I've listed have changed the laws where dogs are no longer considered personal property in a divorce matter. They are considered sentient beings to some degree or the other. And what this means is that if you do end up in litigation and your work and people are working with lawyers, the judge can make the decision about a dog's custody based on what they think is best for the dog. So that really opens things up in terms of dogs not just being personal property. There's a lot more flexibility um, that can come into those decisions, but there needs to be a lot of work done to educate judges <laughs> as to how do you even decide what's right for the dog, but that's another story. Okay, so point number one, back to my five points, is talk about the dog as soon as possible bring it up. Don't let it loom in the background like a big ele invisible elephant in the room. That's really makes the whole process much, much, much more difficult. And it stops. I can't tell you how many lawyers and mediators I've worked with who have cases where everything was fine, ready to sign on the dotted line. And then in the last minute, someone brings up the dog. And then the dog can be so emotional at that stage that it just derails the whole process. And because of the emotions that dogs can have for some people, it really often does do that, where it can just derail everything and it falls apart. Bring it up as soon as possible, air it out. It'll be a relief, even if it is a challenge to bring it up. Point number two, and this article I wrote was really geared toward people getting a divorce. So that's why it's written in a sort of language. But what I say for point number two is, agree between both of you to make a long-term plan that's best for your dog. Now. Everyone will say, oh yeah, I do wanna do what's best for my dog, but people, they forget that very easily when their emotions get high or when they get up, upset about anything. As you're working with your clients and anything happens with any sort of conversation isn't going very smoothly or people getting confused or they don't quite know what the right thing to do is, 
keep bringing the conversation back to what is right for the dog. Let's talk about, let's talk about your dog. And when I say talk about your dog, you have to find out how much energy does the dog have? Does it need lots of exercise? Does it have health problems? Are there behavioral issues the dog has? Because dogs are very different. They're different on their breed. They're differing on their age and their own personal history, which also should help guide that sort of decision. So just keep asking the question, keep turning it back to what do we think is right for the dog here? Not just one or both of you. Now, point number three, a is a challenging point because it's something that people don't always want to hear, but it's true. And that is that most dogs do have one person that they are primarily bonded with. Now, even if they live with a whole family or just a couple, the dog is connected to the family and loves everybody. But if you can look at a situation honestly, there is almost always one person that any one dog is primarily connected to. So that's a difficult conversation to have. This is always a difficult conversation to have, but you got to try to ask, work with your clients and just ask lots of questions and just find out if the dog has a lot of energy, they're probably mostly bonded with the person who exercises them and who does stuff with them. If there's one person who works from home and the dog is used to sitting with that person all day, then that person might be the one that the dog has has gravitated to and really bond with. Dogs do tend to have a preference. And if if they could only speak English, they would tell us who it is that they're actually bonded with. Now, the hardest part of your job when you work with pet custody situations is the question of shared custody. So point number four in my article, I've got a cat on my foot, always happens, sorry. Point number four, is if you're thinking about shared custody, you as the divorcing person, it's something you have to think about very carefully. So I brought this up a little bit earlier. Um, Shared custody, as I said, in the long term, tends to be challenging for dogs. There are some dogs who can tolerate it. There are some dogs who are completely fine, like totally easygoing kind of dogs, really not bothered by very much, but this is the exception. Typically what happens if there is a shared custody, if people want to do a shared custody scenario, is that it'll start out okay, and after a few months, the dog is getting pretty stressed. They don't want to get in the car, they don't know where they're going, they start showing behavior issues, like they start chewing on the carpet, they start peeing in the house, they get a bit grumpy and growly, like a dog who was really friendly can become a little bit aggressive or start hiding in the closet. I could give you a list of all the things that I work with my clients. So as for you listening here as divorce professionals, it's important to understand this so that you don't suggest shared custody to try to make it okay. The thought of saying goodbye to a dog is so heartbreaking that the idea of shared custody feels like a wonderful thing to suggest. Like, it's okay, we can do shared custody. You don't have to say goodbye to your dog. But that's only a short-term solution. In the long term, if it is stressful for the dog, then you've got to go back and you've got to renegotiate and the whole thing gets drawn out. So if your clients bring it up, if it's something they want to try, then of course you can go with that, but it's worth bringing up, even if you want to send them this article or just say it, that it doesn't always work for every dog. 
And as much as we love our dogs like children, they're not children. They are not human beings. And dogs can say goodbye to people a lot easier than we can. Or saying goodbye to a dog is a lot more heartbreaking for the people involved than it is for the dog. So the idea that a dog has to be in contact with their parents, like we would say with a human child, is, is not true and it's not fair on dogs because that's humanizing them too much. And dogs and cats are very simple little souls, to be honest. They're predators, they're small mammals, but they're not human beings. It Shared custody, so let me just circle back to that as a concept. Shared custody is most workable with a dog that is a very easygoing dog, a dog that's not easily stressed, a dog that likes new things, a dog that likes change. You, it tends to be more difficult. And this, again, I go into great detail in the course that I teach, because like we spend a few hours on shared custody. But if it's a dog who's easily stressed, whether it's because of its breed or because of its background, like if it was a rescue dog or a dog that had been abused, more dogs that are more fragile in their sort of behavior don't tend to do very well with shared custody. And they just don't like change that much. <laughs> and it's the same thing happens if you've got a very old dog. I have a client I'm working with and they have two dogs and they've been doing shared custody, but the dogs are very different ages. And it's quite clear that the older dog is not coping with the shared custody situation. It's just not working for that dog. Um, so I've been, we've been experimenting with different sort of logistical things. And um, what they're going to continue to do most likely is that the younger dog will do shared custody and the older dog is going to stay with one of the two parties permanently, which, and that's usually what happens. So even with shared custody, even if it works well for a few years, Dogs get old, they get old very fast, which is terrible of them. <laughs> they don't stick around long enough. And then you have to stop shared custody at some point anyway, because the dogs get too old and it's stressful for them. Yeah, it's a challenging thing. And the other thing about shared custody is that if the people themselves are not able to be peaceful together, it's also not fair to put the dog in a shared custody situation because then every time the dog moves back and forth between homes, it's stressful and it's traumatic for the dog. And that again is a, a reason not to recommend shared custody for the dog's sake, if they're willing to trust you on that. So now the fifth point, the, the fifth tip is similar to shared custody, but not quite. And this is a, a challenging and a difficult concept because it sounds, it's, a, it's hard to hear. So let me just say it. So giving permission to your former partner to visit the dog anytime may not work out so well in the long run and it's not very fair on the dog. So allow me to explain this. Um, so you've got a, a couple that's separating, let's call them, let's call them Sally and Bob have split up and they've got a dog. And I'm summarizing, I've worked with clients, many clients in this exact same dynamic. Let's say that Bob is going to allow Sally to keep Rover. Sally is so grateful that, she, that Bob is not fighting for Rover that Sally says, Bob, it's fine. You can visit Rover whenever you want. So almost as a gesture of thanks or appreciation, it's very easy in that moment to say, you can visit the dog anytime. I don't mind. I don't want to keep you from Rover. That sounds really lovely and it is lovely. 
However, let's fast forward a few months. First of all, for the two people involved, what happens, and this is again, I'm speaking about people where there are no children. So obviously if there's children involved, then the people are in contact anyway. If there are no children involved and you set up a, an agreement that you can visit the dog anytime you want, what that means for the people involved is that you're giving your ex permission to come in and out of your life whenever they want to. And this can become very tiresome after a while where some people will use the dog as an excuse to keep tabs on their ex, to check in on them. What are you up to? Are you in a relationship? Have you moved? Whatever it is. And it's very easy for there to be a real lack of boundary about it. And when the, the people I work with who on the onset, you're, as the separation has happened and they're feeling, and things are still peaceful, they say, it's fine, you can visit the dog anytime. If that, if there starts to become some boundary issues where the ex just drops by when they feel like it or without enough notice, then in my example, then Sally could say, hey, Bob, listen, you got to call me ahead of time if you want to visit Rover or a few days notice. And then Bob gets upset that that agreement is changing. And then the whole thing becomes emotional and messy and it doesn't have to. I had a client who I saw and it was very interesting. <laughs> it was a, a woman I've known for many years. She actually came to me for puppy school about 10 years ago. And I just reconnected with her recently. And she has an old dog. He's about 10 years old now. And she was just describing the last couple of years of her life in, in just tears because she had split up with her ex, no children. And just like I described here, she had told him at the time, you can visit the dog whenever you want. And in exchange for that, he was still willing to pay the bills for the dog. So there was an act, a, a literal exchange where he was paying for the dog and he was allowed to visit whenever he wanted. But what happened for her is that she was never really able to let go of the relationship and move forward because at various inappropriate times, her ex would just show up and he felt like he had a right to because he was paying for the dog. And the truth is the dog would just become a tool to stay connected in a weird sort of controlling way. And she just wasn't able to move on with her life or she felt she wasn't able to because this was happening. So for that reason, if people bring this up and say, oh, you can visit whenever you want, bring in some boundaries right away, bring in some limits, bring in some, some kind of explanation of how that can be funny a few months or a few years later. That's from the people side. Now, let's, let's talk about the dog, refocus on the dog. This is what happens for dogs when they grow up with two people, the dog loves both people. Yay, I love Sally and Bob. Let's go back to Sally and Bob and my imaginary rover. When a dog grows up with two people and knows them, that dog, of course, loves those two people, even if the primary bond is with one person. Now, if the one person leaves the dog's life, it can be a little confusing for dogs, they can be a little bit confused and stressed for a few days, and then they're usually quite fine. Dogs are surprisingly adaptable. We might imagine or we want to think that they're miserable without us and that they're struggling and they can't live without us. But unless there's a real deep kind of behavioral issue with the dog, dogs adapt quite well to people leaving their lives. However, let's say that Bob has left Rover's life and then suddenly Bob comes back. 
Now what's Rover going to do? Oh my gosh, Rover's going to think, oh my gosh, it's Christmas and my birthday and every wonderful holiday is happening at once. And he's doing jumping jacks and flipping backwards and all the happy excitement to see Bob again, because there's this person. Now, what you have to understand about in this situation about Rover is Rover's excitement at seeing Bob does not mean he spent the last month or two missing Bob at every moment. Rover was just going about his life. But what dogs are, as any dog professional will tell you, is that dogs are compulsive greeters and dogs love reunions. It's pretty much a dog's favorite thing in the whole world to have a reunion with someone or a dog or a person that they love. So let's say you're visiting the dog. So Rover, Bob comes back to visit Rover. Rover's so excited. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then generally with those visits, what happens is that Bob is then going to do all the most wonderful things in the world he can with Rover. He's going to take him for a good walk. He's going to give him good food. He's going to do all the happy things that Rover likes to do. And then Bob leaves. And that's where the problem is. Then there's the void of Bob left again. And it might happen that maybe two weeks or a month goes by and suddenly Bob reappears. And again, it's this big happy reunion. It's the most exciting day of Rover's life and everything's very exciting. What can happen for dogs is that if this pattern keeps repeating where randomly Bob shows up and it's fireworks of emotion, dogs can then become stressed because he doesn't know when Bob is coming. And dogs can start listening for the car and the footsteps, like maybe that's him, is he coming, whatever it is. And that can actually create anxiety and, and other sort of separation issues for dogs. So for dogs, it's kinder to have a clean break and a clean separation. Random drop-in visits often create more stress for them. Not at the time, but after the person leaves, the, then you see dogs being depressed for a few days, which is always really heartbreaking to see. What I do find works, let's say there are friendly exes and they're amicable and, and everything is no major anger issues there, is that if the one person goes on vacation or has a work trip, if you take the dog to your ex's house to be babysat or to, they're going to look after while you're on vacation, that often works out quite well. What tends to be more challenging is when the ex shows up at the dog's primary house and that's where it's the big excitement and the super exciting emotions. That's when dogs start waiting for their owners sometimes. So do you see the difference? Rather take the dog there, they can stay there while your other person's on vacation and then they can come home. And that tends to be a little bit less stressful and confusing for the dog. So, before I carry on to my next, are there any questions? I don't see anything in the chat. Does anyone, before I move on, have any questions about what I've covered so far? You can just raise your hand if you do. Yep, go for it, Fox. Yeah, so I was, I was thinking, you, you talked about just randomly dropping in. What if you have an arrangement where it's a set date, like when you have a dog walker for like two days of the week? So is this, would this be better or would this be a possibility? Yeah, good question. And yes, the answer is yes. So if there is a, a friendly feeling between the exes, then yes, doing like a once a week visit is much more manageable for a dog. And with that regular sort of visit, um, 
the agreement should be that yes, you go for a walk with the dog, but you don't do every single wonderful thing all at once. Keep it calm. So don't, yeah, don't make it over, over, over exciting. Don't make it much, much more exciting than the dog's like normal everyday life. But yes, that's a good question, Fox. Rather once a week is a better way to do it. Yeah. Dara, did you have a, were you going to ask something, Dara? It, thank you. I don't know how to do the hand part. Oh, that's okay. Uh, uh, so just as a follow-up to what Fox was saying, I was thinking about our situation and how I'm like the one the dog bonds with, but my husband is everything with the dog. So it's interesting. And I was considering if people had a good enough arrangement where they said, look, dog stays in the primary residence, but on a daily basis or three days a week, I take the dog for a walk. It's not a big, wonderful, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're here, but this is, yes, in the morning time, there's a routine. This person comes, takes me on a walk. Would that be something that we could offer to people and say, look, if you really want to try to make this work, it, it can't be craziness. Like it's Christmas time. It has to be just part of the dog's everyday life. So I was just curious about that. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So I had a, that's, I had a client as a perfect example of that who had they had two pointers, two German short-haired pointers. And these, for those of you who don't know, they're tall, athletic, skinny dogs who love to run, <laughs> cool dogs. And what these clients of mine worked out was that on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the ex-part, the, the husband, the ex-husband would come and take the dogs for a run. And that worked for them. And that and that was fine. The dogs got to know the routine. And what I suggested to them, which made a lot of sense for the dogs, was I said, first of all, there's going to be an adjustment to dogs getting used to this routine where for a while, probably every day at six o'clock in the evening, they're going to wonder if dad is coming till they understand the routine. And what I suggested to them that really worked for the dogs is that the dogs had special running harnesses. And I said, behavior wise, the dogs will understand this better if they only wear these particular harnesses on the day that dad is coming. And then mom can put them on say an hour before he's coming or a half an hour so that the dogs, they can't came to understand that signal that, okay, dad is coming, which then constant on the other side, the, when they didn't have the harnesses on, they knew he wasn't coming. So then they settled into it. So it took about two or three weeks and then, then the dogs were fine. Absolutely. Especially if one of the two people um, was the dog's exercise person that can work out really well, but what you just have to, um, bring up for your clients, because I, I see it a lot, is then they're still setting up that they're in contact. <laughs> so for the dog that can work, in my experience, sometimes what happens is it's fine for a few months, and then one of the two people's in a new relationship, and suddenly it's not fine. <laughs> so that's just something that you can bring up. They can come back and maybe rework with it, but it isn't always sustainable for the people's emotion to still be in contact with their ex that much. Sometimes it is, but it's worth bringing it up. But from a dog perspective, absolutely. Yeah, two or three times a week or once a week, as long as it's basically regular and it isn't Christmas, it's just their, their five mile run, then that can work out really good for dogs, definitely. Yeah. Any other questions before I go on? Anything, yeah, anything come up in what we've talked about? Okay, fine. Interesting, we're all women here, as far as I can tell, unless I'm misreading someone's name. It's so interesting how this initially is, is often something that 
women are more interested in then and then men also catch up onto it as well. Is anyone else? Shani, did you have a question? Or did you just turn on your camera? No, okay, fine. Okay, good. Now, let me go to my next one. Okay, the next thing that I wanna bring up, I just wanna to touch a little bit on kids and dogs. So generally, which is good. <laughs> Generally, if there are children, like I said before, people don't tend to fight over the dog as much. If they're gonna fight, it's like the fight tends to go more to the kids, but of course not always. With kids and dogs, very often there is a, an assumption that the dog should simply move and be in whatever home the kids are in. So if we're assuming we're talking about a family where the kids are, the dog, the children are, doing shared custody with the parents. There's an assumption that the dog should, excuse me, just go wherever the kids go. And one of the mediators I worked with who did my course last year, one of the courses last year, she told me the story that, that echoes a often what happens with dogs and kids. A family had three children and they had a little French bulldog. You all know French bulldogs, I'm sure. Little squashy faces and little bat ears. And they tend to be pretty easygoing dogs. They're very popular. I think they're probably the most popular dog besides golden doodles right now in the world. Um, and a lot of people have them with children. And so this particular family had a French bulldog and three kids. And when the family, um, when the parents separated, it was not a very friendly separation, but they did their best. And the kids were on a 50-50 custody with the parents at time. And the dog was moving back and forth with the kids. So what was happening is that this dog, I think she was a little female dog. She was, before the divorce happened, she was a very chilled out, sleepy, cute dog who just liked to sit on the kids and snore because that's French bulldog's biggest talent is snoring and farting, if you don't know, and being very cute. And as she was going across, moving with the kids to the different parents, the youngest child was very attached to the dog, would hug the dog because she also found the transitions between the parents stressful. It was often a bit heated. It wasn't a very calm transition for the kids either. So this little girl would pick up the dog and hug her in the car because she's trying to make herself feel better. And what started happening was that the dog would hide before it was time for the kids to move. Because obviously the kids knew they were going to dad or they were going to mom. The dog figured out the family patterns and the signals about bags and different sort of things. So the first signal that happened was the dog started hiding when it was time to go. And then of course, because the dog was hiding, both parents were irritated with the dog because they were just trying to get the kids in the car to do it, to move across. So then they were grabbing the dog and they were picking her up and putting her in the car and the little girl was hugging her. The dog didn't want to get in the car after a while. And then what started happening is that when the little girl was hugging, the dog started growling. And when the dog started growling, then the parents were shouting at the dog. Now, so this is just an aside, a <laughs> little bit of knowledge on the on the off to the side with this. The only way a dog can say stop, I don't like what's happening, if their first stop has been ignored. In this case, the dog was running away from the car. If a dog is physically stuck somewhere, the only way they can say stop, the only way they can say I need space is to growl. Growling is not a sign that a dog is aggressive. It is a sign that a dog needs space. Dogs can't speak English. They can't push you away with their hand. All they can do is growl to say, please give me some space, please leave me alone. Now, when dogs growl at children, the automatic reaction from parents always, which is very understandable, 
is to shout at the dog and say, no, how dare you growl at the child? And when this happens enough, um, enough times to the dog, you end up with a dog who does not growl. You don't end up with a dog who's happy about the children or happy about being hugged or happy about being sat on, which kids will do. You just get a dog who no longer feels safe to growl. And then you get dogs who nip children. That's the trajectory of how it almost always happens. And that's exactly what happened with this little Frenchie. After a few transitions of him growling at the girl, parents were shouting, and then the girl was still picking up the dog and hugging it. The dog bit the child in the face. And of course, everyone was upset. And in hindsight, it was just inevitable. Me explaining it in this way, it's pretty inevitable. But given the stress of everything that was happening, the parents just didn't pay as much attention as they should have. So that story actually ended fine because grandmother took the dog. <laughs> Granny swept in and said, nope, this dog can't handle this. Um, she took the dog into her home and then the dog, the kids visit the dog when, when she's there. And that actually worked out for the best. So I'm bringing this up because when there are um, kids and dogs, it shouldn't be automatic that the dog goes with the children. Every situation has to be looked at uniquely and with a lot of sensitivity and a lot of awareness of, can the dog handle this? Um, is the dog, if it's a very busy dog and it's moving with the kids, are the parents gonna have enough time to exercise the dog while the kids are at their house? And you also have to really think about, is the dog really bonded with the children or is the dog more bonded with the adults? Because many kids, sorry, many dogs, even if there's kids in the house, are actually more bonded with one of the grown-ups. but they love the kids, but the grown-up is their primary person. And it's hard because if the kids are very attached to the dog, it can be a hard thing to think of separating them. But one thing to do is just bring up to the parents that we want to teach the kids to look after, to love their dog enough to do what's right for the dog. So Again, you have to look at the history of the dog, their general personality about handling stress. And the other thing that I didn't mention earlier about shared custody, which I highly recommend you do, whether there's children or not, is that if people are gonna do shared custody, that they do it for a trial period. So don't, don't sign on the dotted line that it's a forever sealed deal that the dog is gonna do shared custody. Try it for three months, try it for six months, see how the dog is coping. Because if the dog isn't, then it's only fair that the situation changes or that the structure changes of everything. And the other thing about shared custody that I'll mention, we can write this down, is that longer visits are better. Weekly visits is quite a lot of transitioning for dogs. It's better to do something generally like two weeks, two weeks, or even one month, one month for dogs who go back and forth weekly. It's quite a lot of transitioning for them. The transitions are the most challenging part for a dog, so you want to minimize them. So if someone is willing to do one month, one month, or two weeks, two weeks, it is quite a bit easier for a dog. I was helping someone renegotiate who was had literally put a dog like some people do with children. It was with the dad every Wednesday and every second weekend. <laughs> and, and I said, no, this is not a child. Let's look at this from a dog sort of point of view. So that's also a tip about shared custody, longer visits and a trial period to see how the dog is coping with everything that's happening. So what I wanna say kind of in summary as of this is that I hope that information was helpful. I hope you got some, some things you can find useful in your practice now. What's really important to help your clients do when you're working with them and they're working with their dogs is not to speak about the dogs like they're people. 
don't humanize them in your language. Even if people do it without helping, <laughs> being able to stop them, um, keep, it, keep the conversation grounded in the fact that they're not little children. They're, how are we going to meet the need of this particular dog based on the history of everything? And know for your own sake, when you work with people, that dogs can say goodbye and they really can be okay with it, a lot more so than than we think they can, than we might think they can. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pop in the chat also a link um, to my, I'm just scrolling here for a second, a link to the course that I'm doing. So if any of you are interested, if you want to know more, just drop me an email or you can click on it there because there is still space in the next one that's happening. Um, and then other than that, any other questions? Who's got a question, even about their own dog, but, or about divorce, anything, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> You can jump in if you have a question, pop it in the chat if you don't want to um, speak out loud. But what we're going to do at this point is we are going to conclude the recording. I invite everybody who is joining us live to stick around for some continuing conversation. Um, if you are on this and you are interested in membership in the Amicable Divorce Network, you can head, head over to amicabledivorcenetwork.com. And under member resources, there's an application. We are the only organization in the world that vets divorce industry professionals, and that's attorneys, mental health, financial professionals, coaches, everybody for being resolution focused, experienced and engaging in fair billing practices. And when parties choose to engage in an amicable divorce, we also have a sophisticated online technology platform that they can use to keep things organized and streamlined. And that is entirely free to all of our members to use. So if you're interested in the organization, we include lots of different benefits, including speaking at a wonderful event like this, like Karis did to um, show your expertise. But with this, we're going to conclude the recording and thank you everybody for watching. Thanks.